So, people of God in Christ, it has been said of the Apostle Paul that he was the most converted man to ever live for Christ. Conversion is the word that we use to speak about the change that God works in a sinner's heart so that instead of denying Christ, he or she trusts in Christ. Instead of rebelling against Christ, the sinner bows down to him as king and as savior. Instead of hating God, the sinner begins to love God and to love God in thankful response to what he has done for them in Christ. So it is said of Paul that he was the most converted man to ever live for Christ after his conversion and throughout his ministry. Christ himself even if you remember the story, Christ himself even told Ananias. Ananias was the man who went to heal Paul of his blindness. Christ himself told uh, of Paul, speaking of him, go, or, or, or speaking uh, uh, to Ananias of Paul, he said, go, for he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so it was that Paul not only suffered greatly and persevered through suffering for the sake of Christ in the gospel, but he also became a great teacher for the lesser converted, we might say. And you and I are surely included in, in that category, the lesser converted. And it's not that the lesser converted are not believers. We see this as Paul begins his letter to the Romans and addresses the church at Rome as saints. They were believers in Christ. They had come to faith in Christ, which is, which is to say they had been converted. But they needed to have it explained to them why they should obey Christ. Not in order to be saved, but because they had been saved. So for the sake of their obedience, Paul first explained that they had been brought from death to life, their faith itself being the evidence. So why would they continue to sin? Like a, like a dead man raised from the dead who seeks to sink down into his grave again. Second, they had been set free from the power of sin, their, their faith being the evidence. So why would they continue in sin like a man set free from prison who bangs on the prison door to be let back in? This is the teaching from Romans 6. And Paul's third argument, <clears throat> his third argument coming at the start of Romans 7 is that because they had died and risen with Christ, so they had been released from being married to the law in order to be married to Christ. It was Paul's argument from marriage. Apart from Christ, sinners are in the worst of all possible marriages. So how do you get out of a bad marriage? One way, of course, is to die. But of course, if you die, that's not better. Except if you could die and rise again in order to be married 
to another. And so Paul writes, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. As we said last time, this was scandalous language, especially as it fell upon Jewish ears. To say that the law of God makes a bad marriage partner, a marriage so bad that we must die with Christ in order to be delivered from the law and to belong to Christ as our husband. And so Paul seeks to explain, to clarify further, why we need to die to the law. But we also find in this next passage that he does not back down from this understanding of the failure of the law to save us. We must have died and risen with Christ in order to be saved and in order to live the obedient Christian life. So arriving now at Romans 7, verse 7, the first point is the, st- the law as standard. And we see that Paul is not done with his, his exclamations of, by no means. Remember Romans 6, verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Uh, Romans 6, verse 15, are we to sin because we are not under, under law but under grace? By no means. And now in Romans 7, verse 7, Paul asks, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Paul is clarifying. He was writing a letter, so he couldn't see the, or hear the reaction of, of his readers, but, but he was surely anticipating a gasp, a wide eyes, a, a startled expression on the face of his readers. And so he clarifies, is the law itself sin? Since we have died to it in Christ, by no means was his teaching or was he teaching any such thing. But neither does Paul back down. He writes next, yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Rather than itself being sin, the law of God is instead a standard, God's standard, by which to measure the thoughts, words, and deeds of sinners. And this is not the first time that we have heard this teaching in Romans. In Romans 3, verse 20, it says, For by the works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, that is, in in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law, teaches Paul, comes knowledge of sin. In Romans 4.15, Paul writes, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Here Paul switches to the word transgression, because transgression means what? It means going beyond, and that's his point. That that, that by God's own purpose and design, the law shows us that we have gone beyond, 
that we daily go beyond the limits that He has put in place for us by His law. Again, in Romans 5, verse 13, it says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So once again, the the law itself is not sin. The proof is that sin predates the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Cain killed his brother. Noah got drunk and naked. Uh, Abraham lied and said his wife was his sister. And so on with Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's sons, all before Exodus 19 and 20, when God gave his law at Mount Sinai. We don't need to have the have the law written out for us before we sin. But having the law written out for us, it starts, to, it starts the count of our sin against us. It, start, it, it starts the counter, tick, tick, tick. One sin, two sins, three sins, four sins, five sins, and on and on throughout our lives. On one hand... Time is ticking down until we die. On the other hand, the number of our sins is ticking up. And the law of God was given us so that the sinner can hear, can hear the ticking. The record is being kept throughout our lives. So in Romans 7, verse 7, Paul is simply coming back to this this point now for at least the fourth time. Is the law sin? By no means. Yet if, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And then here is a, an illustration of sorts. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. It seems that what Paul means is that sinners... Uh, do not realize the sinfulness of of coveting. And it's interesting that Paul uses the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, to illustrate his point, because in the story of the rich young ruler, Jesus made similar use of the same commandment. A man came to Jesus and, and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus listed the commandments for the man. Do you want to earn your salvation? Uh, would you achieve eternal life? Here are the commandments. But Jesus leaves off the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. And the reason is that this man was wealthy. And he had likely gained his wealth by always wanting more and more and more. So when the man said, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth, which was itself a lie, or at least showed uh, that the man was blind to his sin, in order to say, all these I have kept from my youth. But, but then Jesus said, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. When Jesus brought in the matter of coveting, it sent the man away disheartened. It says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Well, what about us? 
Which of the commandments would you especially need to set aside in order to pretend that you can save yourself? But the point is that we would really need to get rid of all the commandments because the whole law of God is a standard, the standard even of God's own holiness, and the standard by which God would teach us our sin, graciously showing us our need for Christ as our Savior. For Paul, the commandment that came to mind was coveting, bitterly wanting what another has, wanting more rather than rejoicing with others in what they have. And here indeed is a... can we not sense it or, or, or do we not know it? Here, here is a very prominent sin in our culture today. The rich oppress the poor. They hoard their wealth. And they do so because they always want more and are, and are not about to give up any too much of what they already have. And the poor are so often excused for their coveting, excused because they have less than others. But the law of God comes in and and says to rich and poor alike, you shall not covet. So that we are all convicted, are we not? At least we should be. Because the ministry of the law, that is God's own purpose in the law, is to give us the knowledge of sin. And even more specifically, to show each of us our own sin, to show you your sin, to show me my sin as measured against his holiness. Again, Paul does not back down, but even says something worse, we might say, about the law. The second point is the law as instigator. Verse 8 reads, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Notice first that Paul makes the distinction again between sin and the law. The two are not one and the same. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So it is sin and not the law that is active, seizing the opportunity. And it is sin and not the law that produces as Paul writes, all kinds of covetousness. The law is there. The law is involved. And we might further say that the law even instigates sin. But the law is not sin. Again, this is not the first time Paul has taught this, even within the last passage in verse 5. He writes, For while we were... Uh, living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now he puts it this way, that sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So the point is not that sin and the law are, are one and the same, and neither are Sin and the law like like two bad guys meeting up and conspiring uh, together. No, sin and the law are like um, 
the bad guy, sin, meeting up with the good guy, law, so that the bad guy uh, looks at the good guy and realizes all the more that he is the bad guy and that he can never be like the good guy. And the more he knows it, that he can never be like the good guy, the more he decides to just be the best bad guy he can be. The law even instigates sin, teaches Paul. He even teaches in verse 8 that apart from the law, sin lies dead. The good guy, the law, even stirs up the bad guy and makes him all the more bad. Another illustration, and I, I think I've used this one before, is that one way to stir up disobedience in your children is to tell them what not to do. The, the stairs are dangerous, so you tell the child, don't go over there, don't, don't get too close to the stairs, but it only serves as a suggestion to go near the stairs. Another variation is that the surest way to get a window broken is to put up a sign that says, don't break this window. If you have a row of windows on, on the side of a building, the first window to get broken will be the window with the sign on it saying, don't break the windows. Because the window breaker will not be throwing a stone at the window, but at the sign. Another example, it's not even hypothetical, that uh, there is some evidence, I don't know if you've read this or not, but there's some evidence that all the drug awareness and anti-drug programs conducted in the public schools over the past several decades have actually served to increase drug use among young people. Why? Because they are being told what not to do. And at the same time, they are being introduced to something that perhaps they had not even thought to do until being told not to do it. And isn't that exactly what Paul teaches in Romans 7? For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. It might never have occurred to the child to go near the stairs until being told not to go near the stairs. The kids might never have thought to break a window, but the sign gave them something to do that is somehow deliciously wrong. And so Paul goes on to write, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So the point is not just to identify specific individual sins, misdoings and transgressions. The point instead is to teach us sin as our very nature. Even more, the ministry of the law is to teach us the nature of rebellion within us. Not only can we not keep the law, but the law even arouses our sinful passions, says Paul. And while, and while the law itself does not produce sin, sinners by their nature hear by the law 
the suggestion to sin as an opportunity to rebel against God. And so finally, as a third point, the law as death. This is where the blindness of sin becomes the darkest. Once you are converted, once you are believing in Christ, it seems inconceivable that sinners are able to live their lives knowing that they are going to die, and yet they are not alarmed. Some, it would seem, not in the least bit alarmed. And so they deny death. They deny that there is a God who is going to judge them, or they, or they make up their own God who doesn't judge sin at all, or they invent their own way of salvation, as long as I can count myself good by doing more good than evil, well, then I'm, I'm all right. But the Apostle Paul teaches this. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And don't think for a moment that Paul is, is speaking like a, a dramatic teenager relating some embarrassing story and saying, oh, I, I just could have died. Even the word mortified has come to, to mean to be embarrassed. Paul is not talking about being embarrassed. He is testifying to the effect of the law of God upon his soul. That when by the law he came to know his sin, he died. He was put to death under the conviction of sin. And so he writes the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Here is perhaps the verse, maybe not the only verse, but here is the main verse that has brought about the understanding of uh, God's law as a killer. The Reformed Fathers tell us rightly by this verse, they tell us that the law of God slays us. It kills us. The law puts us to death. And until we understand this, it's not yet abundantly clear that we are believers. To be killed by the law of God doesn't mean that we quit breathing or our heart stops beating, but we die by the law by knowing that we are hopeless and we are helpless and we are bound for hell under the law of God. Memorize the Ten Commandments. Print them out and put them uh, in your wallet or in your purse. Post them everywhere as an inspiration. But the law of God is meant first not to inspire you, but to expire you. So that you will be inspired rather by Christ and will live for him. But once again, you, you can't put any blame on the law. Verse 11 says, for sin, seizing an opportunity. It's the second time that Paul has said this in this, in this short passage. In verse 8, 
But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now in verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. According to Paul, even the killing of the law, in a sense, is not actually done by the law, but by sin through the law. But the point is that the law is not meant to inspire. Hey, I'll just be a better person, according to the law. Instead, the law expires us. The law puts us to death. And so we come back to the beginning. Paul was the most converted man ever to live for Christ. He needed to be in order to suffer and persevere as much as he did for Christ and for the gospel. And when he had preached the gospel so that others were converted too, he sought to see them all the more converted. He preaches and teaches to show the weakness of the law, the inability of the law to save anybody. If the law could save anyone, it would have been Paul because he was the holy of holies, among men. But then he met Jesus. You know the story. On the road to Damascus, he met Jesus and saw him in his exalted state, and Paul was blinded. And when his sight was restored, Ananias coming to to do that miracle for him, When his sight was restored physically, so was his spiritual sight. He saw that the very law that he thought he was keeping was the law that put him to death. He saw that the very law that he thought was his inspiration was actually his expiration. And by the law, he saw the glory of Christ. He was prepared to understand the gospel, the good news, that forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life are found in Jesus Christ. Not by the obedience of sinners, but by faith, by trusting that we have indeed died and have risen again in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, grant that we would look not to ourselves. We look to ourselves either by pride or by ignorance, or probably both. Grant that we would not look to ourselves, but to you for our salvation through Christ. Grant that we would truly hear your law and die under your law's demands. And having been killed by your law, grant that we would be raised to an exultant joy with Christ as our Savior. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.